Well, greetings, church family. Uh, we are again coming to you uh, remotely. I pray that you would uh, uh, be blessed during this time. We, and I hope you'll be praying for the church leadership as we figure out as uh, the the uh, governments around us are issuing different advice uh, advice about meeting together. As we pray about what will work for our particular congregation, uh, regardless. Uh, we are grateful for technology so that we can still stay in touch, that we can still provide uh, good, rich, biblical food for you. And, of course, we just long with anticipation for when we can gather again together. Well, you've just heard Kyle uh, provide a great sermon uh, from Daniel uh, chapter 5, uh, and it was great. And so now I have with me here uh, Kent Shepherd, one of the men in our church, and Mike Workman as well. And I'm Dan Herbstrom, one of your elders. I'm sure most of you people realize that, but I guess for the new people, uh, it's, it's good to introduce people. But what, to start out, we just want to ask, uh, what did you appreciate about the sermon and uh, how were you helped by it? Kent, I'll go ahead and start with you. Sure. So I think just his careful explanation of the historical period, um, going through the kingly lines, filling in that gap between Daniel chapter 4 to Daniel chapter 5, um, helped give us a great understanding of who King Belshazzar actually was. And then really the timeline that occurred in this, this feast, you know, he just walked through, kind of gave all the details, showcased really the, the pride and ego that he was struggling with. Um, I don't know if he knew he was struggling with it, but the pride and ego that he had, bring us up to that, that kind of confrontation where Daniel was reading what was on the wall. Um, it was just a fantastic exposition, and I just loved his his two um, applications, really, you've got the, the plate that Jesus ate from and then the cup that he drank from. Mm -hmm. So he, he just bridged that gap and gave us such wonderful application that we have a perfect king that's willing to die for us, a king that, that doesn't struggle with the same failures of our earthly kings. Mm. Amen. Amen. Mike, how about you? Absolutely. And uh, just personally, uh, when, at, when we get towards the end, or when he got towards the end and he starts uh, talking about um, the Last Supper with the disciples, I, I just got really fascinated. Yeah, and, so and, um, but yeah, I appreciated the historical. I'm a history guy, so I, I appreciate that. It kind of, like he said, set mm -hmm. the plate. But um, I, my mind's still on, on that yeah. part. I think that's that's that, is, that is heady stuff. Uh, same with you all. I just reiterate what a great model of exposition. I mean, you just see it, and it just broke down into two main sections in his sermons. He explained the text, yeah. and then he applied the text. <laughs> and he did it with great skill, uh, using simple language. And so, again, just benefit. A, a, a sermon, a passage I've read many times, heard preached many times, but not nearly as well as I heard it uh, preached today. And then uh, probably just my favorite thing, I love that imagery of the cup. And I just remember the first time I either heard it preached or a song that really uh, delved into this, realizing that when Christ in Gethsemane was, was praying, Father, may this cup pass, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, to connect that with the cup theme throughout the Old Testament and the cup of God's wrath on sinful nations and how he makes them drink that cup of wrath and they stagger with the wrath of God. And then looking forward to the book of Revelation and the bowls, likely cups of God's wrath being poured out. Christ drank God's wrath for us so that we could experience, as Kyle said, the cup of his grace. And uh, I know substitution the idea of a God who would punish and show wrath is controversial, but that's the gospel. Yeah. That's how we can have our sins forgiven. So that, I love how he brought that, that connection there. Well, uh, one of the things we see in this passage is a very proud man. 
Belteshazzar clearly is proud. He scoffs at the, the Hebrew God. Uh, he is proud. He feels secure even against the enemies that are outside his gates. Uh, he is proud. He shows disrespect to Daniel, likely as Kyle brought out. Pride is dangerous, both to the non-believer and to the believer. It's subtle. Uh, it, it, it's dangerous. What are, uh, Mike, what, what are the dangers of pride, and what are some ways to guard against it? Fortunately, I don't deal with pride. <laughs> exactly. We've all got that fixed, right? Yeah. So I, I, that is one of, the, one of the areas that I deal with consistently, my pride. And I know what pride does. Pride immediately separates me from God because mm -hmm. I place myself, I may not think about it, but if I dissect pride, what do I do? I'm placing myself above God. Um, and so we see that, obviously, through Daniel. We see that starting pretty much in chapter 1 with Nebuchadnezzar. Now we see it here. Um, and we see the results are that, we, number one, we're, we're just lost in our sin, just like he was. He's just lost in his sin. He doesn't even have a, a good situational awareness of what's going on around him. What's interesting to me with pride, and I, I thought about this, is when that finger, that hand began to write, you know, I assume that the finger itself would have been an amazing thing, but it is the Word of God that does what? Hmm. It, I think the Hebrew, I looked this up, I think the Hebrew said the tendons of his loins gave way. Uh, he, the best he could do, as prideful as he was, as wealthy as he was, as powerful as he was, the best he could do in front of all those people was soil himself mm. Mm -hmm. when he came in contact with the written word of God. Mm. Um, uh, and it's just, it's just an amazing thought. I may have gone off on a tangent there, but that's oh, an amazing thing. It's definitely humbling, yeah. isn't it? It yeah. is, yeah. He had a humbling encounter. Uh, the, uh, or you would hope it would be. Exactly. Yeah. It did yeah. not do that. On that well, unlike yes. his uh, grandfather or predecessor, predecessor, if you will. Yeah. Uh, Kent, what are the dangers of pride and how do we guard against it? So I think looking back in scripture, you know, you look at the fall of Satan trying to elevate himself to a position of prominence that was not given to him from God. And then as he deceived Adam and Eve and said, if you eat from this tree, you will be like God. And so that pride drove them to want to eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And it's pride that ultimately led to the fall. And it's been something that's been plaguing humanity from the very first, uh, from the beginnings of, of humanity. So when we look at pride, either we elevate ourselves up and we keep ourselves from coming to God because coming to God, there's nothing that you can bring that would ingratiate yourself before him. There's nothing that you can offer him that would commend yourself to his, to his graces. When we look at salvation in the gospel, it is us coming empty-handed and, and a complete recognition that Christ did everything, that he had perfect righteousness, that he lived a perfect sinless life, that he died for us, and that he took all of the wrath of God that we deserved. And so there's a recognition that you're coming and just saying, Lord, you did it all, yet I am getting everything. I'm getting all of your graces. And, and that's counterintuitive to our culture. We are in a pride-driven culture where pride is actually considered to be virtuous nowadays. It's a selfie generation. It's a me generation. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I've accomplished. And so the, the gospel, is that's, that's antithetical to the gospel. So I think that's something that everybody who comes to the gospel, they have to come to grip with, um, that mm -hmm. recognition that Christ did it all. You, yeah. 
The only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Yeah. 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 No, I love how the gospel is both humbling and yet through that humbling, it gives you the greatest source of joy uh, known to man. Yeah, pride is, I think Lewis talks about how it really is like a foundational sin and how it's just so subtle. We, we we're so blinded to it because it's like the water we swim in almost. And of course, we, we know... Uh, we're blessed that we get a lot of uh, non-believers, non-professing Christians who are either come to our services when we have them here or they interact with us. And, of course, there's that type of pride that keeps us keeps, keep people from God, the intellectual pride that won't even seriously grapple with the claims of Christianity but just dismisses them. Uh, there's the, the, the pride of wanting to run our own lives, that re- realizing that even if they don't understand the gospel, they realize, oh, it's going to involve some sort of, I'm not going to get to do everything I want to do. And so no, I'm just not ready yet to, to submit my lifestyle and my goals to someone else, to, to God. Uh, you and I see in the army, and you were in the army. We've all been you know, in places where there's careers. Some people just live for that pride of accomplishment mm-hmm. and uh, career and achievement. And that just blinds them to the needs of their own soul. It gives them an inflated uh, view of themselves or it makes them crushed when, when their plan doesn't go, work out the way they want. And then all of us as Christians, we're, we're, as long as we're in this flesh, we're going to struggle with pride. Our hearts want, wants to put ourselves on the pedestal where only God belongs. He wants us to look at our own needs, our own emotions, rather than be considerate of those around us. And uh, it often conflicts with our, our need to love others. So what's so? We see when we look at Belteshazzar, uh, we should uh, also be humbled and warned about the kind of pride either that keeps us from coming to God or that can poison our relationship to uh, to God. Uh, well, we talked about pride. Uh, another thing we see here is, uh, let's look at God. God here is a God who judges, he evaluates, and he also punishes. He's basically uh, given Belteshazzar a heads up that uh, you, you have not met my standard, and you are going to be punished now. And a lot of people today recoil from that. The idea, uh, talk about the cup of God's wrath here, the idea that God could be angry and that he would ever punish anyone is downright offensive today. Mm-hmm. It's been offensive in other time periods too, but it's especially offensive today. What should we think about that, Kent? Uh, a God who judges and punishes, uh, what does that say about God? So I think it speaks about God's holiness first and foremost, yes. that he is He's holy, he's perfect, he has a righteous standard that none of us could possibly achieve. And because of that, we are under the wrath of God. Every single one of us, are under the wrath of God unless we are covered in the blood of Christ. So when we see that judgment, we have to come to the recognition that, that God is holy and that we are not, yet he has paved the way. He has made reconciliation possible through the cross. Mm. So I think that we just kind of have to you know, frame it like that, look at the, the judgment of God, that a just God has to have wrath. There has to be a payment for sin. People have to get punished. So because of that, everybody's going to get punished. Either you're going to get punished yourself or your punishment is going to be diverted to Christ, but judgment has to be dealt out. Mike? Yeah, when we live in a culture that wants to constantly focus on God as love, he, he is, but also we have to recognize, like Kent said, that there is a just and a wrathful part that goes along with that on sin. And one of the things that I was thinking about, those words apply that were written on the wall apply to every person who is not covered by the the blood of Christ. 
That is condemnation written for specifically for him in there, but there is condemnation on us. The way that I became a, a believer was understanding that there is a, a part of God that's not just love, but wrath also. Mm-hmm. And then I was under that wrath. And when that when I understood that, then I understood what the cross was, and that makes Jesus so much more precious to me, that he took the penalty that was intended for Mike Workman specifically uh, and, and took that, that wrath of God on there. So we may not like it, but that is a part of who God is. And we, you know, mm-hmm. Exactly. And the reason, if you look through all, all of Scripture and the character of God, the reason God must be wrathful, that he must punish, is because he is good. He is holy. And if you, know, you look throughout history and you see some of the terrible things human beings have done and you don't think, Somebody needs to stop that. Someone needs to judge that. Well, then you just turn that and realize that, well, our sin might not be quite as destructive or, or nasty, but it's still merits. I love how Kyle brought in both aspects of God's nature here. Yes, we, we're talking about God is judging here because he's good and there is wrath involved. But then he also drew those important connections to Christ and his taking on that punishment on himself so that he can show love. And spoiler alert and teaser for uh, two or three sermons in my, uh, later in my First John series, likely in July and after, uh, when we get to First John chapter 4, we will see this beautifully, what it means that God is love. So there you go. Uh, I don't want to spoil it. But uh, third question, Kyle really unpacks some, some serious history. Now, mm-hmm. you know, my job is being uh, a historian. I know you mentioned you love history. Ken, I'm sure you love history too. A lot, not everybody loves history as much as uh, we do, or they have the same familiarity with history. But yet we see lots of history all throughout the Bible. Uh, of the many genres of literature in the Bible, history is a big part mm-hmm. of that. There's challenges with history. Uh, so people probably want to know good resources to, to, to grapple with that history. Uh, some people are discouraged by it, and they just want to focus on other things. And, uh, and, and, uh, but what are some ways that we should appreciate history in the Bible and that we can grapple with it? So when I was first saved, and I went to read the whole Bible cover to cover for the first time, and I was going um, through the Old Testament, I got to the prophets, and I had no frame of reference. I had no context of understanding where they fit into the timeline. And so for me, it was very confusing. And I've talked to a lot of folks that feel that same way. They read the prophets, and they don't, they don't have that framework of understanding. So what I would suggest is there are a couple tools that I want to tell you about. The first one is a chronological reading plan. So if you're confused about how it fits together, if you go into Ligonier Ministries, you can look on Bible reading plans. There's one that goes chronological. And so it aligns the historical books with the prophetic books and gives you a general flow of how that whole timeline fits together so you're not kind of you know reaching out, out of a vacuum. Another thing that I would suggest you to do is to understand the, the epochs or the, 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 the timeline periods in the Old Testament. So you know, we, we've got the creation, fall, flood. We've got the patriarchs, the exodus, um, the, the conquest, the judges. We've got the, the kings, the united divided kingdoms, the captivity and return. So I just listed the entire timeline of the Old Testament. And once you begin to understand how that fits together and where those books fit into that, then you have a greater understanding of that flow of redemption or that that meta-narrative of salvation history that God is unfolding leading up to the cross. Um, Another tool that I would suggest, and I I bought this for Mary many years ago, but it's kind of neat, it's called 
the Adams synchronological chart of the Bible. And so what it does, it's like 23 feet long. It's really long and it lays all the historical events out, the kings that were ruling at that point in time, what's going on at that point in the Bible. And it's just such an amazing chart to, to put it out on the wall and see that. And if you've got you know, kids and you've got a playroom to run that around the room and to get them to, to visualize that this is not... Um, you know, a, a book just full of stories that these were real people, real historical yeah. events and stuff was going on. Um, last thing, a book that I've really kind of been blessed by reading is um, G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson wrote the commentary in the New Testament, use of the Old Testament, and he really kind of unites um, both of the testaments of Scripture. It's just a great resource. It's probably about $40 on Amazon if you want to pick it up and read it. I think you'd be blessed by it. This is great. I'm writing down uh, the, these resources here. So this is great. Yeah, I don't have any uh, resources. Like that's that. fine. Just, what, what, what are the blessings of yeah. history or what are the challenges of history? Right. Well, so I was a history major. That's, that's one of the good reasons man, I just, yes. yeah, that's the reason I ended up being a firefighter because I <laughs> couldn't find any other job with it. Uh, but, I, but it does help me get a, a, a more of a concept of what's going on. Mm. My wife's not. So I, I can, out of the corner of my eye, watch her as Kyle began to give us those that plate and that cup at the beginning, mm. it was very helpful for her mm. because it gets her in a place. She may not know all that, and it's not important. You don't have to know all the historical nuances necessarily to be a uh, to be saved or or be you know understand the Bible and things like that. But as we mature in, in Christ, as we spend more time in, in the Bible, we need to to look at that. We need to see, like he said, what the meta narrative is. Uh, what context uh, uh, these writers are writing in, and we always find things that are that are new to us. I, you know, I've um, I have found some things recently in historical narratives that I didn't necessarily pick up on. So that's the exciting part about yeah. being in. Exactly. Well, right. As someone who loves history, who has always loved history, I just encourage those of you who are just intimidated at the thought of history, just think of it this way: history is just a story. Now, you've probably had a, a history teacher who was really boring or focused on little minutia and trivia and really spoiled it for you. But good history is just a good story, especially when it focuses on the big picture. Now, sometimes you got to drill down into the details when it's relevant to the story. Uh, but just the nitty-gritty details by themselves are, are, are pretty boring. But just think of history as a story. And there's nothing more compelling than stories. And just realize these are real stories. And God is using uh, stories both because they're such powerful teaching tools, but because these really happen. That's one of the reasons there's genealogies in the Bible, and there aren't genealogies in other ancient mythologies and accounts. It's because these really happened. And, and you also see human nature is the same. So when you see God interacting with human beings, even in ancient times, it, it's still we, we understand how God interacts with us. And we have same struggles, same things. And then even just the... The meta-narrative that you guys talked about of human history, just realize that little, his human history is part of a bigger history of God's glory. His, his, his nature, his creation, and the, the future, his future reign. And human, human history is just a little part of that. So any, any finding, cl final closing thoughts? Hey, just, I love this sermon. This was yeah. excellent. This was fantastic. This was great. Daniel, I, I remember, Daniel has always been my favorite book of the Bible. First, because 
my name is Daniel, and I just love the stories. But then as I've grown in my, in my maturity, I still love it because of all the books of the Bible, uh, it's like we're on Mount Olympus and you see the rise and fall of empires and God is in control of it all. Absolutely. Spoiler alert, uh, as Kyle wouldn't let me talk too much about this subject because next week when we get to Daniel 6, we're going to see this in a big way and he's going to draw. But if you like the rise and fall of empires, you like that big picture stuff, you're going to love uh, Kyle's next sermon. So with that, family, we love you, we miss you, and uh, thank you for joining us for this little sermon discussion. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.